Major support for Out to Lunch Acadiana is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker. Established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and by Business First Bank, with locations throughout the state, including Lafayette and Lake Charles, providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum at b1bank.com. Support also comes from Wyndham Garden Lafayette. From Cafe Pavilionville in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Professor of Finance and Director of the award-winning Birken Road Reports, Peter Rusciutti. It's business, Acadiana style. Hi, I'm Peter Rusciutti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. There have always been people who believe the end of the world is just around the corner, like people who say that honking at a red light makes it turn green. Eventually, they're going to be right. When the end of the world gets here, if you happen to be home in Acadiana, make sure you know where to find my two lunch guests. Jess Fike will make sure you have fresh water, and Marcus Descant will make sure you have fresh food. Jess is the president and CEO of H2O Incorporated. H2O can turn just about any water from seawater to sewerage into water for drinking and bathing, which is what they need to do in places like oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico and in the country of Mexico. Jess, welcome out to lunch. Thank you. It is good to have you here. Mar Marcus is a horticulturist. He's the owner of Urban Naturalist in Lafayette. Marcus specializes in creating edible landscape environments. Now, that they not only look nice, but they taste good, too. It's an ancient and hip new trend in domestic agriculture. Uh, Marcus, welcome out to lunch. Uh, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. All righty. Now, Marcus, I, I guess it started with the Industrial Revolution. We moved away from living in agricultural-based communities, and we stopped growing our own food. And, and then to make our urban environment look less bleak, we planted flowers and decorative trees. Uh, now, hundreds of years and thousands of cities later, you've figured out that we can grow urban gardens that look good and that are also edible crops. Is, a, is it a worldwide movement or is it something you're pioneering yourself? Um, I'd say it's, it's worldwide, um, or at least in more developed areas, but my method of doing it is uh, just a slightly different take on it in that we're trying to siphon from the $76 billion landscape industry, and instead of creating a niche, uh, a gardening niche, we're trying to reanalyze the paradigm that we're in and, and just ask people, well, how could I do things possibly differently? So that, that's sort of what we're doing. We're basically hybridizing the two things that disgust me the most in, in industrial agriculture, which is straight lines of monotonous monocultures and repetitive tasks, and then landscapes which have plants that have no ecological effect, nor do they, they supply the inhabitants being ourselves. Are there certain, um, uh, certain uh, vegetables and such that you can grow that just off the hand, uh, they, they, they look good. Uh, um, you know, I'd say blueberries look pretty good. Oh and yeah. Pomegranate trees are a great substitute for crepe myrtles. Um, most, most of your neighbors would never even know you have a, a pomegranate until they see the fruit hanging from the tree. Uh, another nice looking one is bay leaf or oh yeah. um, pineapple guava is a really attractive tree. And citrus have been used in formal gardens for hundreds of years since like the dawn of what we deem as like the most formal landscaping. Really? Louis XIV used to surround his courtyards with citrus trees and that was a very royal thing to do. 
We're trying to accomplish more than one thing with a landscape, always. We're trying to create comfort, uh, maybe some butterfly attractants, hummingbirds, which would add some beauty to it as well, as well as the pollinator aspect. And then we're also trying to provide services for them. So we're trying to you know, approach several different problems with the landscape. Now, Jess, there's literally nothing more fundamentally basic to human life than water. Uh, every single person in the world needs it. In a business sense, you couldn't find a product for which there's more demand. But when you've got people living on an oil rig in the middle of the ocean or a village in Mexico where the whole population is dependent for their very existence on your technology, there's not much room for error. Uh, how do you engineer and maintain a water purifying system that never fails? Well, unfortunately, you know, any technology, any kind of mechanical equipment does fail, so what you have to do is you have to uh, design into the equipment some redundancies, and uh, you have to use, of course, the highest quality components that you can afford to put into the equipment. And what do you do that uh, other purifying uh, uh, machinery doesn't do? Well, we specialize in, in the offshore oil and gas industry, and where we got our start was in the shallow waters, and so what you have there is not just seawater, but you have seawater with a lot of turbidity. Turbidity oh, yeah. being uh, mud and uh, particulate matter that's in the water. So the filtration is, is a pretty heavy step in our process. And so we cut our teeth on filtering this very difficult water. And so our pre-filtration uh, methods that we use are the most robust ones out there. So you started with the most started. difficult uh, we did. to start. Wow. We did. We did. See, I mean, you know, taking People the salt out of seawater. People tell you not to do that, by the way. I know, <laughs> I know. I know. I guess we, were, we had it in for ourselves from the start. But, uh, you know... You start with the, one of the hardest things to do is to take the salt out of water and then you add to it, to, you have to get all that particulate matter out in a, a cost-effective and reliable way before you take the salt out of the water. And if I went so. out to a rig that has your uh, facilities, how big is it? What are we talking about? Uh, the typical rig uh, now, is say, let's say a 200-man rig, uh, the footprint would be you know, somewhere in the neighborhood about eight feet by five feet. Oh, to, uh, all right. To all the water space they would is have. in short supply. It is, it that's, is. That's so there's always a, uh, yeah, there's always a, you know, a, a cost-benefit analysis that gets done on how much pre-treatment you can afford to have versus the, the footprint that you take up, you know, and how reliable the plant is. So Like, I just came back from California, and it's just, wow, it's really sad. I mean, they haven't had rain in, like, five years. Yeah. Uh, they keep talking about... Uh, you know, trying to create fresh water out of seawater. Is it, would it be something like yours and just be larger? It it's exactly the same technology, and, and people think that this is some kind of new technology, but we've been doing it since 1980 for the oil and gas industry, and the technology had already been around commercially for 20 or 30 years before we started. Um, it's only really gotten to be more and more ubiquitous at this point where RO technology is everywhere. And, and in fact, uh, parts of California and Florida, here in the U.S. and even Texas, are putting in large-scale desalination to supply their needs. And other countries like Israel and Australia are highly dependent upon seawater desalination to meet their needs. You know, and, I, and when you talk to um, uh, money managers that buy stocks and such, you, you get into one of those long-term conversations, inevitably people tell you, you know, what's going to be the thing out there is water. That's, uh, you'd like to have some investment in water. So it I don't is. have to tell you, you're, you're all in water now. We're all this in water. Is, We're all in water. This is, this is great. Now, when you mention deep water, that isn't quite as difficult because you're not digging up the mud at the bottom? It's not as bad, but it would still be uh, a little more particulate matter than you'd have in a land-based installation. Because in a land-based installation, you can do uh, different treatment methods that require a lot of footprint. Um, so... Like I say, because of the compact nature of our equipment, we, we, we can't use those, uh, those sedimentation technologies that we'd use for land-based application. Wow. Of course, land-based application would be in the million gallon per day range, and we're in the you know, 20,000 gallon a day range. And, so. and if they don't have you, what do they do? 
the, the, typically in the past what they would do is boat water out to the, to the platform, oh, so and that still gets done. But uh, you know, there, there's some safety issues associated with boating water. There's a lot of room for contamination. There's a question of if the water at the dock anymore is even, even potable in some locations because it, it could be well water. And with saltwater intrusion, a lot of the, uh, the shore bases now have very salty well water, oh. and it's not actually potable water. Which salt would water does not cure thing. your thirst. No, it doesn't. It's People don't like to think about it, but the reality is we'll be reusing more of our water, and that means just what you think it means. It means toilet to tap. And you already see this everywhere Which is in why California. I invited you to lunch here. There's so, they, yeah, <laughs> no, nobody wants to think about it, but the reality <laughs> is you've already, had, you've already been in places uh, likely where you've consumed water that was toilet to tap. I mean, if you, if you think about all the, uh, the reservoir systems in Texas, that's where they get their drinking water from. Well, the reservoirs get rainfall and runoff, which includes sure. sewer outfalls. So, you know, all the uh, pretty up. much everywhere in Texas that they're using surface water, likely, you know, there's some level of, uh, you know, <laughs> sewage that went into that. So nobody likes to think about it, and especially before you eat lunch, but <laughs> it's, it's a reality. Mark, let me ask you about, uh, um, when, you, when you're trying to pick those, those plants that are going to work, you've got, you, you brought up a kind of a list. You want to know, are they interested in eating those, those things? Sure. And, and then there's the, the visual, I guess, that, mm -hmm. and such. But um, what about cost? Is this a more expensive way to do things? Or, uh? I'd say it's comparable. It's very, it's very close to the same cost because generally um, the irrigation requirements are lower or at least a, a different approach. We use more of a, a low emit drip irrigation, which is a lot cheaper than like the pop-up rotor heads. So you can reduce that cost, but um, soil cost is more because uh, we're using more soil than a conventional landscape. So, so that's a little higher. And I guess that would be the, maybe that other question is how much work does that owner want to put into this? Uh, yeah. Exactly, and, and what we're always ultimately trying to do is design something as low landscape, as, as low maintenance as possible in the landscape because uh, we know that everyone's busy and no one wants to go back to being a, a homesteader. You know, not, not <laughs> yeah, everyone not at least. Yeah, not go to the top, right. Or they, they, they want from it, but they don't want to have to put in lots and lots of hours. So therefore, I, I try and design everything more like an ecosystem. So I look to forests for inspiration because no one's out there maintaining them. You know, that's and, true. And they run on their own. So, uh, so that's what we're trying to recreate is uh, an ecosystem that we can set off and the maintenance is dropping instead of increasing. Okay, now I'm going to ask you the question everyone wanted to ask you. How do you stop people from stealing your fruit and all? That's what everyone asks. <laughs> um, it's never a problem. And I've got some public landscapes where it's completely free food. Anyone can stop by and pick. And I think the way to stop people from stealing it is to just give it to them. Well, like put a crate out with some on front? Or? Well, no, I design it to where it's very easy to find what you're looking for and pick. So we use lots of trellises so that all the vegetables are very exposed really nicely. And that allows people to find what they're, what they're looking for. It's completely self-serve. So, and I also design them to be more like parks. So it's somewhere where you might want to bring your dog or throw a Frisbee or, you know, just have a nice <laughs> afternoon. And then you can also graze on some things. <laughs> I like the, the visual on this. Well, let me ask you this, Jasmine. The oil businesses, uh, particularly offshore, has had a tough yeah. couple of years here. Uh, um, are you starting to think maybe I, I should look at some of the other things as well? Yeah, the, it's, it's like any other industry. Uh, water is a humongous industry. Uh, I mean, almost every process, almost every business needs water, you know, to, to, to operate. Every, certainly every household needs water. Um, but it's just like any other business. You have to find a niche that uh, that you can compete in, 
and that you have knowledge in and that you go after a certain customer base. And so we've been in that business in the, in the offshore side of things for so long that uh, you know, even though times are, are tough right now, we know that that'll come back at some and you've, point. I mean, you're a young so guy, but you've seen a couple of cycles already, probably. I have, never anyone as severe as this one, but uh, you know, that, that's, yeah. it, it comes and goes. Like I say, it's, it's, it's any industry has its ups and downs, and I think uh, when things are down, everybody says it'll never come back right. up, and, and when, when things, things are up, are up they, they exactly say it'll right. never come back down, so <laughs> we just have to uh, stay long-term with our vision and, and realize that uh, people are going to be using oil and gas for right. years to come, right? They, you yeah. know, and uh, and and it's it's actually a good thing. I think at the end of the day that that there'll be more choices in energy, but the reality is uh, the alternative energy sources they're just not commercially viable yet. Right. right and uh, it'll be over time that they, that they become to you know it's a, it, it'll be choices in how you get your energy. Marcus, I got I thought of a great ad for you where you've got the house and in your landscaping and then. It's become so plentiful that the guy has a truck out front and he's actually gone into the business. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would be good, yeah. <laughs> now, some things you plant, by the way, because we do, is that it produces so much you just don't know what on earth to do with it. Like zucchini, yes. eventually neighbors stop opening their doors. They're yeah. just a... Yeah. Everyone knows when cucumbers are in season, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's certain things that you can get a lot out of which allows you to, you know, a lot of times people do plant too much of, of something and they don't really think it through, you know? So you can just plant a little bit of this and that and, and try and use those same shape concepts that we use in ornamental practices to get a, a nice look out of the landscape by using some edibles. There's also a lot of colorful options nowadays. So like, you know, it used to be you could only get okra in green. Now you can get it in red, orange, <laughs> purple. It all tastes like okra. But <laughs> if you're if you're dressing up the front of a house, it could be a focal point, you know? Yeah. So, boy, I like what both of you guys do. <laughs> now, Marcus, just, this is the part of the show uh, where we talk about your brother-in-law. Uh, picture this. After lunch today, you go back to your office. You're finally getting a chance to sit at your desk and catch up on some stuff when your phone rings and you see it's your brother-in-law. You know what he wants to borrow your truck, but you decide to pick it up anyway. And this time, though, he doesn't want your truck. He wants your advice. So, Marcus, I'll start with you. Your brother-in-law uh, says he's going, in, he's going to sell his house and put all his money into buying a business he found for sale on LinkedIn. It's called Hip Hop Bunny Poop, and it sells small bags of organic rabbit fertilizer to millennial apartment dwellers who are growing their own vegetables in pots. What do you advise your brother-in-law to do? Um, he could probably get the poop from me, so <laughs> that's, that's, that is possible. It's, it's my poop of choice, so you know. The rabbit? Yes. Oh wow, poop of choice! You never hear that particularly in a restaurant. I know, I know. Uh, that's right. Um, the reason why I like the rabbit over uh, the other poops is it's it's higher in nutrients than a lot of the other poops, and you can use it fresh, so you don't necessarily have to compost it. So he's uh, he's on the right track, I guess. Here he's on the right track with his with his inputs. Yeah. But, uh, but this trend that you're talking about, you know, <laughs> that person trying to grow vegetables on their balcony isn't, no, that's happening. No, no, I mean, that's, uh, that's a, a large portion of our customers are trying to do it in containers yep. on really small scale, you know, so they're trying to use up space uh, that they're not using currently and also try and dress it up. So we usually try and help them out with uh, just some different ideas. One of the biggest issues with new gardeners is usually they just don't know how big something's going to get. Yeah. They have no idea on scale. So 
So um, that's usually a valuable lesson when someone hasn't grown something before. Well, you know what, the plant is taking over. Um, but I wouldn't go into business just selling the bunny poop. No. Okay, all right. No, all right. That's to say negative on that <laughs> one. Jess, your brother-in-law says he's been let go from his job at the pool care company due to failing a drug test while he's still on probation. He says you know that drug tests are unreliable. Anyway, it's all good. He's going to use this opportunity to go into the pool business for himself. He's going to market a consumer version of your water purification unit so in the next natural disaster, people can drink their pool water. What do you say? Are you in? I'd say uh, for anybody, if you're thinking about starting a business, the step one is are you passionate about this, uh, whatever, whatever you're trying to go into. And if right. you're really passionate about it, then you'll be great at it and you'll love it. And if uh, you're just getting into it just to uh, make a few dollars yep. and that's your only uh, vision for it, you'll never be successful at that. So if it's, uh, if it's what he loves and, and uh, he sees a lifetime of uh, enjoyment in selling people filters to uh, filter their pool water for emergency situations. I say, so he'll that, be great at that's it. That's your basic hurdle. Go for it. Yeah. Go for it. I, I think. Uh, Could you do that, by the way? Thing. I mean, this would be like. Sure. I guess some pools are salt water and some are chlorinated, I guess, right? But you could... Saltwater pools are really chlorinated pools. Uh, that's kind of a, a marketing angle that they take because what they do is they actually use a piece of equipment that we actually do the same technology on a, on a, uh, on a commercial scale where you convert the sodium chloride to sodium hypochlorite uh, being an electrochemical process. And so saltwater oh. pools are really still chlorine pools. It's just that they make their own chlorine from the saltwater and uh, you can maintain the chlorine level a little bit better because the the equipment will continuously generate chlorine versus you bombing it with chlorine you you know, every once in a while. I used to have a pool and I'll never have a pool again. So, uh, <laughs> I tell people, if you want to have a pool, don't have a tree anywhere near the pool. They are uh, right about what that. What is it they say? Yeah. Like, don't have a boat, have a friend that has a boat. Exactly. Kind of the, uh, yeah, have a friend with a pool. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it's just, uh, I'm picturing the shallow water and the, and the gulf and such you've got. Mm -hmm. What was a lot of majors and now many more independents, um, are, yeah. are there just a lot more relationships you have to develop? Or? There are, and this is a relationships business in the, uh, in the oil and gas industry especially. Um, you know, people like to call it a good old boys network, but really I think every industry is like that where it's a, when you get down into an industry, it's a handful of people who, uh, you know, really have uh, a lot of influence on what's going on. So you have to be you know, in the know, and you always have to be in relationships. But I think that's any any business you have to have. And if they say great yes, you go out, you bring the probably bring it out on a on a vessel and such. But is, how long mm -hmm. does it take to get it going? Well, we do everything from uh, from rental equipment, which can be out the next day uh, if they have a temporary need, like a construction project or something like that going on. To uh, to if they have a high spec project, let's say they're building a new, you know, six or seven billion dollar platform, um, it can be you know six months to eight months. And, and from, from start to finish on a project very easily. And Marcus, where do you get your customers from? I guess, you know, you do a great job on somebody's house and they, they tell somebody, but uh, yeah. marketing-wise? Uh, Lots of word of mouth and social media. Social media works well for me because um, I think the topic is engaging. People are really excited about this topic. So um, it's, it's fairly easy to get people to read and share sometimes if we're working on a new project that's exciting in a public spot where anyone can visit it. So I rely mostly on that. I don't. I don't spend any money on on um, advertising, and I also skywriting. Do, you don't do that. No. no and I also do lots of public speaking. So so oh, this, for example, would be one sure. example. Uh, I um, teach part of the Master Gardeners course, and I, I do you know lots of public speaking. I try and take it whenever I can. Oh, that's and you know what I think about is that so many people uh, 
oh, I don't know, get towards the kind of the Home Depot of the world, you know, and just get a couple of things. So I guess you've got to convince them why having an expert makes a difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think our, our regular customers, they're not necessarily buying the plants, they're buying the advice, all right? Because um, you can get the plants, we grow all of our own plants, so they're, they're significantly different in like uh, the process. We don't use any growth inhibitors, we don't use any harsh pesticides, just like soap is about the only thing we <laughs> use. So, um, so you're getting a, a nicer product, but still what separates it is the advice. You know, how do I grow this? What am I going to have to look out for? What should I expect? How do I harvest it? What's it going to look like? You know, there's a whole barrage of questions that can come with a, a single sale of a tomato plant. I'm thinking about getting into Apple Care, so, so that we could, uh, <laughs> okay, well, the tomato's this much, but if you want to answer questions about oh, it, that would ask be, questions. Yeah. That would be great. Let me ask each of you guys, how did you get started in this business? For me, uh, H2O is a family business, so okay. my father started the business in 1980 with a partner and uh, you know, I guess like uh, like most kids, I graduated from, from university here in Lafayette and uh, tore off to Dallas as fast as I could to, uh, to you know, chase the, uh, the uh, dot-com boom that was happening, right. which then became the dot-com bomb. And uh, you know, one thing led to another and uh, my wife wanted to come back to Lafayette and I really wanted to come back to Lafayette to raise a family as well and uh, my father, you know, said, uh, Come, come work at, uh, at H2O. That's why I've been keeping it open is to have you here. And Were you so one of those kids at the Thanksgiving it. table, like at 15, told everybody, I'm never going to work in the water business? I did. I did. <laughs> yeah, I said I never, I never worked for the family business just because I didn't want to be that uh, the boss's son kind of yeah. uh, connotation going on for me. So <laughs> I reluctantly came in thinking I wasn't really going to like it and uh, ended up being very passionate about it. Wow. And, and I really credit that to the success, the success that we've had is that you know, that passion was there. I think uh, just like we talked about with the brother-in-law, you know, yeah. bunny poop business. <laughs> you, can't, you, can't, you can't make that stuff up. You either have passion for what you do or you don't. <laughs> Marcus, so. what about yourself? Did oh, um, okay, so I, I did work in agriculture as a, you know, as a kid, and it repelled me from it. I, I, <laughs> I couldn't stand it. Both of these stories don't start outside. <laughs> uh, the, 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 like, repetitive actions, the industrialization of it. A lot of what you say now you don't like. Sent me running. Yeah, <laughs> as far away from it as I could. And um, I still worked in horticulture. I was working in like lawn and landscape maintenance. Still, I had like this big lack of passion for what I was doing. You know, it just didn't feel like I was really making a difference. And I was in film school uh, in college and I was studying insects. I wanted to, you know, uh, natural photography was my oh, concentration. Wow. And I quickly realized that if you want to find your subjects being insects, you need to know your plants because Different insects have different relationships with different plants. So I went to vegetable gardens a lot because they usually had a lot of insect activity, lots of interesting things happening, and learned more about plants. And I was always interested in growing vegetables and not really the ornamental side. So I just started to do it as a hobby. Um, I was selling plants that I was growing. Uh, one thing led to another, and I was doing landscape installation. And you know, so we've just, just kind of gradually moved into this. Wow. <laughs> you know, so. When you mentioned that earlier, I had forgotten the fact that you talked about like pesticides and such. And, you know, it's one thing about pesticides you'd put on an ornamental, but, you know, if you're going to eat this stuff. Oh, yeah, it's a whole other ballgame. So, I mean, I think it's very important to know a lot about the insects. I'm really more of a bug guy than a plant guy. And you should know about them because they're spending way more time in the garden than you are. So you need to be able to identify who's there and what the role is. Like, what, what are you doing here, you know? So... You don't want to go in and just blanketly 
kill all bugs because there's only Some a small percentage great, of right? them that are bad, you know? So, and <laughs> once you start doing that, well, then you go down the same downward spiral of a continuous application. So, um, what instead we want to do is we want to create uh, a functioning ecosystem with insect predators that are taking care of the problem for you. And you do that through highly selective pest control. So you want an insecticide that would target the exact pest that you're looking for, which you've identified, take it out, and leave the rest of the ecosystem alone. So there's a lot of good bugs. Oh, this definitely. Is a, a yeah, there's, there's only 2% of them are bad. It's like a PSA for bugs we're doing here. This is so great. They, now, Jess, Marcus, whatever other great ideas we all might come up with, we're not getting very far without food and water. Uh, from our perspective here at Cafe Vermilionville, looking out the beautiful courtyard with Popeyes on the corner and sprinklers irrigating gardens all around. It's, uh, it's, it's easy to take a ready supply of food and water for granted, but there are many people who are not so fortunate and who greatly benefit from your work, Jess. I appreciate that. And, and, you can, and everybody benefits from your approach to gardening and horticulture, Marcus. So thank you very much. I, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to, to join me today on, on Out to Lunch. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Marcus Descant. He's the owner of Urban Naturalist and Jess Fike, the president of H2O Incorporated. You can find out more about Marcus's earthly pursuits and Jess's aqua adventures by following the links on our websites, krvs.org and itsacadiana.com. Today's show is recorded live over lunch at Cafe Vermilion Villain Lafayette. Cafe V is open six days a week for lunch and dinner with a courtyard that sets the scene for fine Louisiana cuisine. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. And Christian is our researcher. Our theme song, Encore Monsieur Nice Guy, is written by Mitch Foreman and performed by Mitch Foreman and Andre Michaud. Our Acadiana business consultants are Pete Prados from Innovate Acadiana, Zach Barker from The Opportunity Machine, and Dr. Blake Escaday. If you want to know what we look like, and admit it, you do, you can find photos from this show on our website and Facebook page. These photos were taken today by Gwen O'Quinn. You can get this show as a podcast. You can listen to past shows. You can keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our websites. It's acadiana.com and krvs.org. Support for Out to Lunch Acadiana comes from Wyndham Garden Lafayette, located off Pinhook near Calise Saloon. Wyndham Garden Lafayette has 290 sleeping rooms with 14,000 square feet of meeting space to accommodate groups from 10 to 500 for meetings, conferences, weddings, and high school reunions. Additional support comes from ABiz Magazine and AcadianaBusiness.com, the essential information source for business decision makers throughout the one Acadiana region. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Cafe Vermilionville for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch Acadiana is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker. Established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S. Providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com And by Business First Bank with locations throughout the state including Lafayette and Lake Charles providing personal and commercial banking treasury management and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank Banking with greater momentum at B1Bank.com 
Support also comes from Wyndham Garden Lafayette. Thank you.